In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 32. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, performs miraculous healings. He draws attention in the regions of Lydia and Joppa, and meanwhile, in Caesarea, a devout Roman centurion named Cornelius experiences a divine vision commanding him to send for Peter. As these two worlds begin to converge, a groundbreaking event is set in motion that transcends cultural and religious barriers and paves the way for the gospel to spread among the Gentiles. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Tuesday, August 1st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word thrives thanks to listeners like you whose prayers and contributions support KFUO's radio ministry. Our heartfelt gratitude goes also to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, our generous sponsor. They translate, publish, and distribute biblically-based and Christ-centered materials around the world. Explore LHF's amazing work and how they can help you at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning is pretty special. Please join me in welcoming my guest coming to us live from the Synodical Convention in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Boisclair, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, and welcome to all the listeners from sunny Milwaukee. Our well, tell us how <laughs> how's the how's the atmosphere there in Milwaukee? It's been a, a little while since I've been to the few uh, conventions I've been to. I, I hope things are a blessing, uh, maybe a little challenging too. Yes, I think that's a good characterization of it. It's uh, there's it's a blessing. It's it's exciting to be with all uh, members of the synod from throughout the nation and. Um, uh, meeting new friends, uh, greeting older ones, and and also uh, sharing the love of Christ, the Christ crucified. Well, I'll tell you what, we have a lot to go through today. It's not a whole lot of text, but it's certainly a lot going on behind the scenes and, and on the ground there as the new church is making inroads into the culture and the gospel of Jesus is being spread. But before we just dive in as much as I want to, I think it might be a good idea for us to start our time together in prayer, and I invite you to lead us in that prayer. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you called Peter and Paul into the office of the Holy Ministry, the apostolic form of that office, to bring eternal healing to all the world. Grant that we may follow the Apostle Peter on his tour of visitation and healing, that we may see in in it the pattern of ministry today, preaching, teaching, and healing through you alone, the only salvation, who live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, when we ended our program yesterday, it was with this verse, verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So those words are interesting, and we found them interesting yesterday because it says the church had peace and was being built up. 
but these words were given to us in the context of talking about all the persecutions and challenges that the church was facing. Uh, and like I said, we talked about that yesterday, but it's a great place to start today because as we think about what it means to be in peace or at peace, especially within the church, especially within the church that's in a culture that rejects it wholesale, as the early Christians did, as we are starting to experience, it's such a, a good reminder, right, that it it we can still have peace, but be built up in the Lord, even in the midst of challenging times. I just think that's a great place for us to get our minds before we keep going. Exactly. And, and of course, uh, a very great enemy of the church, and in being an enemy of the church, an enemy of our Lord Jesus Christ, was uh, changed uh, by the power of God's Spirit on the road to Damascus. And so uh, the one who was the, the worst enemy of the church became its, its greatest defender and uh, the proclaimer of the gospel. And Absolutely. St. Paul. Yeah, right. I mean, and he ends up being not only the most prolific writer of the New Testament, but um, he experiences a lot of the same struggles that he imposed on others. And that's another fascinating thing about his ministry, is that Paul continuously suffered for the faith. And that's how much faith or how strong of a faith God had given him, because he endured suffering for the sake of it. Um, So now, here we are, And we find ourselves with a little shift in perspective because we're joining Peter with verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. All right, that's stopping at the end of verse 35. Take us through this beautiful miracle done by Peter um, that he does in the name of Jesus. Yes. Well, first it mentions that he, you know, it's the uh, text is a little bit, uh, doesn't fill in all the blanks. Uh, in this case, it's it's all the regions in that area. And, uh, you know, so he went through all those regions, Uh, some of the commentaries add those words, and he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Um, In this case, it's interesting, it talks about going up and coming down. If you look at uh, the Holy Land, uh, you would go up to Jerusalem and you would go down to the coast. And it's interesting in, in Acts 18, verse 22, when uh, the apostle, uh, well, it was when Paul came from one of his missionary journeys, it, he went to Caesarea, and and then he went up and greeted the church. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, well, what does that mean? It meant he went from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So he went up uh, to greet the church, and then he, of course, went down, and then he went to Antioch after that. So in this case, uh, uh, Peter is coming from Jerusalem, and he's going down to this city of Lydda, and uh, then he meets, of course, Aeneas. Now, Aeneas is an interesting name. It's it's a Greek name. Uh, the name Aeneas was, uh, or Aeneas was one of the princes of Troy, and and considered one of the founders of of the city of Rome. 
uh, in, in you know, many years before, what, 800 years before. And um, in this particular case, uh, you have, uh, and probably uh, it would be a, a Jew who was named Aeneas, because we know they had Greek names like Andrew, the apostle, uh, and uh, he was um, uh, a paralytic for eight years. Uh, some some uh, say that you can interpret that to say that he was, since he was eight years old, he was paralyzed. And then uh, Jesus, or rather Peter comes to him and uh, uses, uses a different fr- uh, phrase or formula, not in the name of Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ heals you. Uh, and, 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 you know, again, that's, it's a perfect picture, not only of that physical healing, but also of the um, eternal healing that the Lord administers through uh, those who are uh, his apostles and his ministers. And then, and, and, and what's interesting is that he, he uh, Peter follows in the Lord's example to say, rise and, and take up your bed, you know, take care. You don't need it anymore. And he arose. And then, of course, uh, that gave witness to the apostolic gospel that Peter had about the Lord Jesus, and uh, the people turned to the Lord by the power of God's Spirit. Well, let's talk about faith, right? So back in chapter 3, Peter said to the man um, outside the beautiful gate, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Here we have him once again performing another miracle, And Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed, just as you said. Well, where where faith comes in is imagine being in Peter's place, and he's looking at this man who's been either bedridden or crippled for eight years or since he was eight, and then saying, Jesus Christ heals you. And the faith comes in because if the man then was not healed after invoking Jesus' name— Peter looks like an idiot. Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus begins to uh, have some cracks. And so Peter really, in great faith, says Jesus Christ heals you knowing that it would be done. Now, I don't know if this is just from his experience now as as an apostle and receiving this gift of healing and seeing it work um, or what, but I just think just that whole situation in and of itself is something it's so hard for us to resonate with. Like, I don't believe I wouldn't go into a, 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 a hospital room and say, Jesus heals you and expect them to be perfectly well. We certainly implore Christ to heal if it be his will. Um, but just this is not a situation that we run into today. It's hard for people to get their minds around. No. And, 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 and of course, in these particular times, uh, things are uh, you know the uh, word of God is not established, in, you know, inscripturated, and and so and the this is the time of the apostles, who of course are the uh, with Christ being the cornerstone. They are the foundations of the church, and so they're laying foundations here uh, in preaching Christ to uh, the people in 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 um, Judea. And uh, probably Aeneas was a, was a Christian, and 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 of course he, he he kind of joins in, you might say, in in laying the foundation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which so also there is the need for the signs of an apostle being uh, carried out here. And the apostle Paul said even in his ministry that that uh, he of course uh, was directed by the Lord to to do the signs of an apostle. So that that's basically what's going on here is is they're laying the foundation. 
for uh, in our day and age, I mean, the Lord has not called us to an apostolic uh, form of the office of the holy ministry. So we are not called to do uh, miraculous signs. Or, and, and of course, it's up it's up to the Lord. I mean, you know, from the witness of the early church, of course, these particular miraculous signs um, sort of uh, ceased, uh, you know, before the end of the first century. And I also like, though, just the language in terms of making it very clear that the healing power, so to speak, did not come from Peter, but from Jesus. I mean, he certainly said before in Jesus's name, but I really do love this language of Jesus Christ heals you. It's not just his apostolic witness uh, or, or position that gives him the ability to proclaim Jesus Christ, certainly to do the signs, as you've been saying, but to proclaim Jesus. And I think sometimes um, we get caught up in this idea of, of saying, well, this is what we believe the Bible says, or this is what Lutherans believe and teach, or this is how we interpret Christ. But we have that duty to go out and speak with the power of Christ's name, so long as we are consistent with Scripture. I think we, when we put disclaimers all over our message, I think it, it weakens the message. You know, we don't believe these. This isn't just a bunch of stuff we believe the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is not what we believe Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. So I, I hear that in that language of Jesus Christ heals you, not I'm healing you through Jesus, although both are fine, of course. Yeah, and I, I think you—that's uh, a very vital point to mention there. And and it, it's kind of like before. It's it's uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Uh, in this particular case, this is a time when the Holy Spirit, of course, through uh, Peter, is is showing that it is Jesus who is the one that is active in Peter's ministry. He is the one that is healing Aeneas, uh, as he, of course, is the one that went to the cross and took away the sins of the world. And, and we trust in, in uh, what he has done for us through faith. Well, and it's certainly working. Verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Um, and and that's, that's the main thing. He's getting out there. He's proclaiming the message of Jesus. I mean, they didn't they didn't put their faith, hope, and trust in Christ because Peter was able to heal this guy. Rather, the Holy Spirit took the message and give, gave them faith in Jesus who's able to heal people. Um, and the reason why I bring up that distinction is because too often today, Christians get very frustrated, I think, because we have a hard time proclaiming with authority the Word of God, and we think that we have to add things to it in order to entice people to believe or convince them to believe or attract them to our style of, of worshiping Christ, when all that's necessary is that we rely on the Holy Spirit. And I see that's what Peter's doing here. Oh, absolutely. I think you can't—that's uh, the most important thing that comes out of this text. Um, and and uh, we, we, we can't— uh, improve on, or we can't uh, give power to our witness and our proclamation. It is all the Holy Spirit through the Word that uh, that basically uh, enters the ears of the hearers and 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 changes hearts. Uh, so we need to, you know, pay close attention and to the 
uh, pattern of sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ as we proclaim and, and trust in, in him and, and uh, the Holy Spirit to uh, you know, bring about what God intends. Anything else about this particular part of our reading for today before we move on to the next section? Yes, it. Uh, th- this is uh, by the um, uh, plain of of Sharon. Uh, it, it's uh, a beautiful, a beautiful area in uh, the Holy Land, and and it's kind of like a crossroads because it's on the road to Caesarea. Caesarea, of course, is the uh, the headquarters of the Roman procurator who is in charge of of this district for the Roman Empire, and. Um, and, and so it's kind of like the the gospel is spreading, and and uh, in in this during this time where there's these excellent roads and and an excellent uh, uh, ways in which the uh, it can be spread to more and more people. Well, let's move on and see how it's spreading. Um, we're going to head down to Joppa, which I think is about ten miles from where he's at now, starting with verse thirty six. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose, and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave um, gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, pausing there. It's the end of the chapter. So here we have, he goes down to Joppa, and we have Tabitha, which means Dorcas, evidently a wonderfully generous, kind lady who has now passed away, and people are celebrating uh, the good works that she had done. Um, set the stage a little more clearly for us. Uh, who who is this Tabitha? Yes, uh, uh, she she's sort of like a is said to be a believer, um, a disciple. Uh, she um, uh, is 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 very active in doing uh, what we might call social ministry in in, in uh, making clothing. It shows the it, it's it's sort of a, a powerful and a beautiful work of Christian women uh, to to serve those in need. Uh, she's make she's engaged in making both tunics, so that's the uh, main garment, and then also uh, the cloaks that uh, the people wore in those days. And uh, these these um, uh, widows that uh, of course they were had were benefited by that, and also. Uh, they they probably, as one commentator says, they might have had a little shop in which they were making these clothes for for people to have, and that that of course it shows the the, the ministry of the church is one that it takes care of the whole person, uh, obviously first and foremost the soul, but also the body as well. Um, Peter, uh, of course, uh, was called there to to. Uh, uh, 
basically, uh, again, um, do assign. Uh, in this particular case, it's kind of reminiscent of what um, e- Elijah and Elisha did in, in um, raising uh, the uh, ch- uh, two young men from from death, and in this case, and and, and it's kind of like a, a picture of Christ uh, too. You know, if you change the B in Tabitha uh, to Talitha to an L, uh, you have the raising of Jairus's daughter in the Gospels, uh, where where Christ uh, takes her by the hand and says Talitha kumi. In this case, uh, uh, Peter probably said Tabitha kumi. Uh, her name means uh, gazelle, or in you know both in in Hebrew, of course, Tabitha, and in uh, Greek, Dorcas, and um, uh, you know it seems like uh, in in the case of the uh, children that uh, Elijah and Elisha raised by God's power from the dead, uh, all he had to do was just speak her name, and and she uh, was raised, and then he just uh, raised her up and brought her uh, back to her congregation, and they were praising God. Now, this is the first recorded incident of a resurrection performed by the disciples after um, Jesus's ascension. So I wonder, and I know that you talked about how there has some similarities, but I wonder if, and I I mentioned earlier how he with very bold faith said, uh, you know, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. Well, this is the first and only time that we know about Peter, um, through Jesus, of course, raising someone from the dead. Uh, do you? I just wonder. I'm speculating. Do you think he removed the women from the room because there was a part of him that thought eh, this might not work? Oh, I I wouldn't think so. I think it was kind of like in line with. Um, uh, it's interesting when Christ uh, went with Jairus and his wife and and with his inner circle of disciples to um, raise uh, the. Jairus's daughter from the dead. He mm-hmm. also wanted all of the rest to to leave the room, uh, you know. So, uh, no, but I, no, absolutely not. I'm sure that Peter uh, was convinced by the Holy Spirit that uh, Tabitha would rise from the dead. Let's talk about that a little bit. Do you think there's room for for doubt in the hearts of these guys, even though they're performing these amazing miracles? Peter is the same one who got himself into plenty of trouble when Jesus was alive for not fully understanding things and doubting things. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't imagine that you're saying that, you know, that they're perfect. Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, but, but of course, they went through that uh, marvelous change on Pentecost where, uh, you know, being uh, filled and, and activated and empowered and, and directed and guided by the God's Holy Spirit, uh, that they, they boldly went out to bear witness to the gospel and uh, and do and do ministry in this manner but absolutely you know he, he's a, he, he's a great uh, example to us but but of course all of us have feet of clay we're we're all all sinners so obviously and you've already brought this up but I think it's a beautiful testimony to the fact that not only was Tabitha or Dorcas, uh, both, uh, you know, he was, they were, she was known, rather, as this, uh, this beautiful believer, but that her testimony is greater than that. She has an importance to the community. The widows are coming and displaying all the good things that she's done. So you mentioned earlier about the church's need to make sure that, you know, we're not only proclaiming the good news of Christ, which saves the soul, but that we're taking care of people according to their human needs. We're living out our lives within the vocations that God has given us. 
so many people think that uh, being a, a warrior for Christ, uh, to being one who's out there and, and bringing people in for the kingdom looks a lot like Peter's life when I think in reality, most of them look like Tabitha's life, a life normally lived, lived out for her neighbor, and she probably did so much more for people than she even realized and, and wouldn't have known had, of course, Peter not raised her from the dead. Oh, absolutely. And, and what a, a tremendous way in which this faithful woman uh, can be uh, employed in, in the spreading, in the, in the laying of the foundation uh, of the Holy Christian Church during, during this time. And, and, and what a privilege that she had. Yeah, there are many women's groups that had been traditionally named uh, like Dorcas groups or named after Tabitha, according to one of her two names here. Um, but uh, we don't necessarily have a lot of women's groups named after them anymore. But I think it was a nice she she served as a nice, uh, I guess, patron saint of not just women, but especially women who who used the skills that God gave them to be able to reach out to those needy in the community. And I think her mission continues on with groups like the LWML even today. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the, who, who basically have done so much with their mighty mites and, and their witness to Jesus Christ. And, and uh, as, as they sing in, in, in their, their hymn, uh, Lutheran women, one of all, one and all, we have heard the gospel call. And so uh, we, we celebrate and we thank God for the ministry of faithful women in the church. One hundred percent agree, because we see here in both, Peter is continuing the ministry of Jesus, right? He's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, he's proclaiming the good news, and Dorcas is continuing the ministry that Jesus gave her, which is to care for her neighbors, and and then through both of these efforts, people are coming to the faith. Uh, he's presenting her alive, it becomes known throughout all of Joppa, it says, many believed in the Lord just amazing the many and diverse ways in which God uh, brings people to the faith through the proclamation of his word. Um, well, we're going to take a break. We just have a couple minutes towards the, uh, towards the bottom of the hour, but don't go anywhere, folks. When we come back, it's going to be me and my guest live from the convention. He's live from the convention, Pastor David Boisclair. We will see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend David Boisclare. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Over the air, as a podcast, online at kfuo.org, or using the KFUO app, no matter how you're connected with us this morning, I'm just grateful you're here. And if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can reach me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. You can find our guest right now at the uh, National Synodical Convention, which is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Brother, uh, for those who've never been, tell us a little bit about the atmosphere there in Milwaukee. Uh, there's there's a lot of excitement and uh, camaraderie and 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 uh, uh, we're really uh, I, I love the theme uh, that we are uh, to we preach Christ crucified to uh, to Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks uh, foolishness but to us who are saved uh, Christ the power of God and and Christ the wisdom of God. And, and, and uh, I think we're really um, focused on, on what the church is supposed to do as the Lord has, has commissioned us. And, and it's just, uh, oh, there's over a thousand um, Missouri Synod Lutherans here and, and, and guests as well from all over the world uh, that are uh, just watching and, and seeing what we're doing. And, and we're seeing some, some very great decisions being made. Well, that's excellent. You know, I've only been able to go to convention twice as a delegate. I think the last time was also in Milwaukee. So there's a lot of great restaurants as you head into town. Um, it, it's it's fascinating, though, that we gather as a church body and we try to tackle some of the issues that had come up within the triennium and issues that we think will come up in the near future. And sometimes when you're on the floor, especially after hearing uh, impassioned speeches and you hear uh, these resolutions that are read and you're voting for them and it just feels like it's the most important thing in the world uh, then you get back home and you realize as important as synodical convention is it's all the more important that we continue to be faithful in these ordinary ways in which we're ministering for instance i'm not in the exciting environment where you are in milwaukee but i am here uh, in Connecticut, I'm sorry, in Minnesota now, um, helping with uh, the VBS at our congregation. And um, and there's people at home right now, they're wondering, you know, how can I get involved in the work of the church? And it, what we've been saying is still true. It shows itself in so many different ways, from conventions to taking out that person who just needs a listening ear, from sharing Christ with those who are in nursing homes to uh, having VBSs at your church. And if you can't help with any of those, just praying for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is so key and so necessary. And just we're so grateful for folks like you at convention and for all our listeners at home who are doing their best to, well, proclaim the word of Christ. So here we are, we have Dorcas restored to life. Anything else about that text before we move on to uh, chapter 10? And you notice that um, uh, Simon Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner in uh, Joppa. So Simon the Fisherman, that's Peter, uh, is with Simon the Tanner. And it's interesting that a Tanner was uh, kind of um, considered to be on the on the edge or the periphery of, of uh, Jewish uh, society. Uh, it was a very it was a very filthy job, you might say, tanning. Uh, there was also a lot of 
you know, unpleasant smells that were involved with it. Uh, and if you look at the uh, the Jewish literature of the time, they they just really looked down on on a uh, on a Jewish person, a Jewish man, uh, taking such an occupation. And of course, this is this is kind of like. Uh, the, the place in that that the church, you know, the church receives the outcasts, you might say, from from that society, and it's right by the sea, of course, that uh, Simon uh, made use of the salt water uh, in his tanning work, and uh, and and of course, uh, this is probably a place where the church is is present, as there are house churches at this time. Yeah, and he stays with him for quite a while. And you talked about him, you know, being on the periphery of society, um, mostly also because he would have been inherently unclean by Jewish standards, simply by means of of what he has to do. He has to touch dead carcasses of both clean and unclean animals, uh, and this would virtually render him unclean until evening. But if he does it as a living, it's every day. Uh, Why do you think it's important that Luke points out to us? Because he could have just left this out. Why do you think it's important that Luke points out to us that he's staying with a tanner? Um, Is this just, obviously it's a matter of uh, convenience for Peter. It's, it's real life. (laughs) You know, it is just what happened, but the fact that he mentions it, is this just emphasizing how Peter is going more and more into the fringes of society with the gospel? Exactly. Uh, That's, that's kind of like uh, St. Luke's uh, mission in his, his, um, evangelize, you know, as an evangelist in in uh, writing down the gospel of Christ, that Christ is the universal Savior. He is the Savior of of uh, all people, of of uh, even tanners, <laughs> and 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 in the lowest of the low. Um, that um, you know, with God there is no. Uh, favoritism or, or respecter of persons uh, that that he desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, as we move into chapter 10, it's kind of marking a distinction as the church's mission to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish folks, uh, really becomes, uh, I guess, in earnest, right? The conversion of Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, really shows to us that the church has fully, or at least most of them, fully accepted Gentiles into God's people without the necessity of them keeping the Jewish law or conforming to those roots. Now, there's there's going to be divisions that we see. There's going to be sects within the church that uh, disagree on this issue. But I think what we see next is really evidence that the gospel is indeed doing what God had set it out for, and that is to bring both Jews and Gentiles into the faith. Chapter 10, we're actually only going to read the first eight verses, and that kind of leaves us hanging before the big thing, which is Peter's vision. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. But still, there's some groundwork to lay as Peter meets Cornelius. Chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
Well, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, so Jesus has healed a centurion. We've seen centurions in the past, but this one's a little different, a lot different, because this is one for sure is a devout believer in Yahweh and a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Um, but then he's in the Italian cohort. <laughs> what does that mean? Tell us a little bit about Cornelius. Well, there, uh, as, as he's a centurion, of course, he's a, it, it is a, um, uh, a, basically a one over a hundred soldiers. That's why he's a cent, uh, century centurion. Uh, he is of, there were 32 Italian cohorts throughout uh, the Roman world. Uh, as, as we know, the, um, there was a governorship in uh, Syria, and that's kind of like the big headquarters for um, in the Romans there. And of course, uh, he was detailed to uh, Caesarea, which was the uh, home of the procurator or the governor of Judea. And um, and this these this cohort or these cohorts were. Um, volunteers from, uh, you know, seasoned uh, soldiers or veterans, uh, Roman soldiers from Italy. And uh, so, and, and they were very, you know, they, so they were de very devout. It's kind of like showing that uh, even soldiers uh, can be, uh, you know, even if people have those types of uh, vocations in life, uh, that they also can be members of the church. He was he was a God fearer, which was of course sort of a, a he was um, you know basically uh, probably attending worship at a synagogue, uh, but he was uh, you know like in this particular case sort of a little bit further on into. Uh, the faith. Uh, he wasn't a proselyte, which would mean that he would need to be uh, circumcised. And uh, in this case, he he that he didn't go to that step, but he was uh, you know very very uh, interested in the faith of Israel. Uh, and and then of course uh, in this case the Lord uh, intrudes with with sending him a heavenly vision uh, visitor in order to encourage him to get uh, the gospel from uh, Simon Peter. Well, and it also, I believe, piggybacking on what you said about him being a centurion, you know, can centurions be saved? Uh, you know, in contrast to Tabitha, or Dorcas here, where she's described as this wonderful widow who did all these things for people, centurions were known for being men of power, men who use that power for their own gain, uh, men who uh, would bark orders and even would use their power to uh, you know, oppress the people and make money for themselves. In general, things that are inconsistent with the Christian lifestyle. So when you hear him talking about raising up Tabitha from the dead, you think, oh, wow, that makes sense. She's a faithful Christian. She deserves it or whatever. Unfortunately, she still has to die again. So it never really did seem like a benefit to me in the scriptures when I see people being risen from the dead. But but Cornelius here, I think as soon as you you introduce the topic as, well, at Caesarea, there was this Cornelius. He was a centurion. I think everybody's going to initially get the wrong idea until you drop the hammer. Well, he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. And then here's all the good things that he did. So just, again, 
highlighting what you said, I think it's important that uh, Luke's original audience saw that not only was <laughs> salvation for the good old little church ladies, but it is also for the the strong, powerful men. You can be a centurion and also be faithful to Jesus. And uh, this, of course, was a big barrier because uh, uh, Cornelius was a Gentile. And so is uh, Jesus and the gospel for Gentiles? That's, the, that's a big question. Uh, you know, Jews were not permitted to go even into a Gentile home. Uh, and, um, and Peter gets called on the carpet for this, as we know from uh, in uh, chapter 11. Uh, so, so it's, it's, uh, you know, there is, that is a big, uh, boundary that, that, uh, the Lord, uh, of course, as we know from looking at the, uh, the word after that will have, uh, his apostles cross. Do you think that there, I shouldn't say, do you think, I should say, what are the cultural boundaries for us today? You know, is it still such that we are much easier to go out and help the the little old lady that makes the the quilts for everybody, as opposed to the, you know, the strong centurion types? I mean, what what are the things that we need to take this passage and consider in our own lives to say, you know, what maybe I need to make some changes? Yes, it it is to see. Anything in our lives, uh, obviously, that are contrary to the Word of God and, and to our Christian faith, um, you know, are things that, of course, need to be repented of and left. But then there are also uh, the vocations that we have in life that that are uh, can be blessed and, and, and empowered for, for, you know, because that's the manner in which God governs the world through uh, the vocations of, of humanity. Uh, the fathers and mothers, the centurions, the uh, policemen, the uh, the politicians, the Congress people, the president of the United States. I mean, all uh, in a, in a sense is to see that we're part of this great uh, structure that God has created in in order to uh, you know keep the peace in the world, protect the innocent, and to um, you know ensure human well being. And, and uh, that, that the wonderful thing is the, the fact that uh, the Christian church, of course, is, is in line with that according to God's will. Because, you know, that shows how we're in, in, in with the, uh, the creator and the uh, sustainer of the universe in this manner. What does it mean? When he says that the uh, his alms and his prayers have ascended as a memorial before God, um, obviously it makes sense that it just means that God has recognized them. Is, is there any more? I mean, it just seems like an odd phrasing. Yeah, it it it's a, it's a sign that he has faith, that he has true saving faith in God, uh, and that uh, that this is the fruit of his faith. And and uh, and then of course it's it's like kind of in the context of worship they mention the third hour which of course would be three p.m. Uh, where where there would be at the temple in Jerusalem an oblation that is offered to God um, and and in in this particular case it it shows that that he is. Um, among the people of God by by his actions and and it's and it's comforting and encouraging to him uh, to to 
hear from a uh, celestial messenger uh, the fact that um, you know he has faith and that he uh, is demonstrating or, or God is working through him the fruits of that faith. Yeah, it was uh, Peter and John who were going up at this same hour, this hour of prayer at the temple. Uh, so we aren't told exactly where Cornelius is, at least I don't think we are, when he receives this vision. Um, is it your contention that he's at the, at, you know, in prayer on the ninth hour? Yeah, and, and he's, well, and I guess, you again, I think you're right, because it doesn't tell us where he is. He's probably at home. Uh, in his villa in Caesarea, and his family is is probably joining him in doing this. Some of the some of the, his soldiers under him are also uh, following in his his example. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's he's obviously he want you you can sense that there is a hunger in Cornelius uh, to be closer to God, uh, to um, uh, to know what what his plan is for himself and his family in the world. Now, I've been describing Cornelius as a Christian. That's jumping the gun a little bit. At this point, he really is just a faithful follower of Yahweh, seeking to know the truth. He's receptive to the gospel, which is which is great. God sends him this angel, and there are so many people out there who who say, well, gosh, if God would just send me a vision, or God would send me an angel, or if God would give me some sort of sign, then I could have more confidence in what I believe, or I would believe in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. I think it can be frustrating to modern Christians to see the early church uh, receive these visions um, and and not and I guess struggle with whether or not those kinds of things happen today. We know they don't need to happen because all we need to know is in the scriptures, and we don't want to, of course, limit God's ability to do what He wants. But you understand, I think people get frustrated when they see this and they think, you know, well how do I reconcile the fact that these types of things generally don't happen today, but they were happening back then? Yes, that's um, I, very well put. I guess the important thing is to remember is is that our salvation and uh, the Word of God is outside of us, and, uh, and we are uh, basically like Cornelius, uh, wanting to uh, wait on the Lord and, and to hear his word and to um, be occupied with the worship of our Lord in, in the manner in which he is. And, and again, as you said, you know, God limits us—well, and I'm, I'm adding to that by saying God limits <laughs> us, of course, to the means of grace, uh, right. but uh, he doesn't limit himself. Well, and you've already brought this up, but I also want to highlight this. You know, he had um, soldiers that were— Believers like him. Uh, verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, right, he calls two of his servants who have to do what he says, and a devout soldier who will want to hear this from among those who attended him. Now, I don't know if his servants had faith or not, but the point is he gets this devout soldier to go and fetch Peter, but the fact that he's not getting the devout soldier, he's getting just one of them, um, I guess is a good sign that, you know, there are plenty of Gentiles who have been accepted into the Jewish tradition. They have been brought into the faith uh, through whatever means that they had set available to do that. But that, even that stands in contrast to the Christians who are going to argue 
over whether or not Gentiles should be fully included. It seems here anyway, at least in Caesarea, that the Jews had no problem welcoming Gentiles into their fellowship. Yeah, that's a very, very important point to be made here. Um, I think uh, the question is, is, uh, and this was the debate in in the church at that time with the Judaizers. Uh, Judaizers would be uh, those uh, Christians who would say that for a person to become a Christian, they must first become a Jew. They first must uh, follow all of the um, uh, dietary laws of the Old Testament and, and be circumcised. Of course, there was also the, the custom at that time, or, or you know, the tradition of baptizing. They, they were, uh, I think that God-fearers uh, were, were baptized by uh, rabbis or, or the Jews uh, to be in that, that court as that stage. But then, of course, that wasn't the only thing that would happen, would also would be circumcised. Uh, circumcised as well. Uh, Now, the Judaizers said you had to do that before you can become a Christian. And this, of course, deals with the the manner in which God would have it, that uh, Gentiles would not need to become Jews before they become Christians. Is there anything that we do today that's similar? You know, I, I, I had this discussion with another guest, and it was about when people come to faith as adults, and in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod tradition, in many churches, they are then um, invited to go through however many weeks of classes prior to getting baptized. And we brought this up in the context of, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch who says, hey, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? I, I see that sometimes as a similar error, and I know I uh, have some disagreement with uh, it, with folks out there about this, but... I, I'm more of a here's water, what prevents us? Um, I see God keeping his promise to adults just as he does to children by bestowing faith with baptism. And then, of course, then you have to nurture that faith. I don't see having to become a Christian first before receiving uh, baptism as being necessary. Um, you may disagree with me, which is fine, uh, but does that make sense, or do you see any other ways in which we kind of do this sin today? Because what we're going into now is a big message of how Jews and Gentiles are both uh, recipients of God's grace and equally welcome in the kingdom, and that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow with Peter. Uh, but as we prepare our hearts for that conversation, are, are there kind of things that we do today that maybe it's not exactly the way God would have us do them? Exactly. Um you know, it, it, it's important. I, I, th- I tend to agree with you. I think there's the urgency for baptism. Obviously, for, you know, someone who is an adult, it would be someone that can be given, you know, instruction, uh, at least of what baptism is and, and, uh, and what it does for us. Uh, it is the washing of regeneration, renewing in the Holy Spirit. Uh, something that we want to, uh, you know, give or, or convey to someone uh, without any delay. Um, and then, and of course, the order in uh, Matthew 28 is uh, make disciples. How do we make disciples? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have bid you, uh, all I've, uh, you know, told you. 
Um, and I use that gospel word uh, instead of the word command because that's kind of a law word. Um, but it, you know, the question is, of course, you know, are there other things that we require? Uh, you know, it, it, we should not require. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul says, you know, you remain in the, uh, you know, the vocation or the state in which you were called so that people will understand that um, all is that is needed is faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his precious gospel. And, and so I think that's a very important um, task that we have to make that clear and, and not put any, you know, if you look at Acts 15, the, the church will discuss that. We don't want to put any barriers in anyone's way for them to come to Christ. Well, we're coming close to the end of the program, and I want to make sure that you're able to get out the message to anyone who uh, has not heard our whole program. What is the main takeaway from this particular lesson? It is that um, Christ has come into the world to bring life. They, they, as he says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And, and he, of course, has completed his work of redemption. And uh, now he uh, has, a, has called and, and placed his uh, apostles into the office of the ministry of, of uh, laying the foundation of, of the church. And uh, so that... Um, any anyone uh, may receive life, and 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 just like the angel said to the apostles when he when they were released from prison, uh, go and and share the words of this life, and so we can see that life is is at work here with the raising of Tabitha and with the uh, message of the gospel that uh, brings life to people. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Boisclair, pastor of faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Pastor, first of all, thanks for being uh, on the program. Thanks for being there in Milwaukee. Uh, I, I assume you're a delegate there making some votes yeah. for us. Yes, I am. And uh, <laughs> Excellent. My, Good. My... Well, God's wisdom on you and the rest of the delegates. I pray that the rest of your time in Milwaukee is fruitful. Thank you very much, and, and blessings on all that hear the word. Thank you. Tomorrow, folks, we do continue with chapter 10 and Peter's vision. Peter, praying on a rooftop, is granted a vision where God, well, it looks as though he's challenging Jewish dietary laws, but really it symbolizes the breaking of boundaries between Jews and Gentiles. Meanwhile, Cornelius's messengers arrive and invite Peter to come to Caesarea. And so in this groundbreaking encounter that follows, Peter proclaims that God shows no partiality, and he preaches the gospel to these Gentiles. And as he speaks, the Holy Spirit descends upon all who are present, just like at Pentecost, affirming that salvation through Christ is not limited by race or nationality. It is indeed for all people. So until then, until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 